Hello and welcome to another episode of the DFWTO podcast. I am your host, Casper. I'm your other host, Becky Gremlin. Here to bring you all things spooky on Wednesdays because... Wednesdays are for podcasts. All right, my dudes, before we get into this crazy-ass story of Project Poltergeist, which is like uh, mostly paranormals. Um, you know how I compared it when I was telling Hubby about it? Candyman meets Poltergeist. Oh my god, it's perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Had all the makings. So once we get into it, you guys will understand more of what of what we mean by it. But I hope that entices you more. Yes. Because I love both those movies. <laughs> um, as you should. Also, to reiterate, the first Poltergeist, not the new one that was. No, 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 no. Absolute mm-hmm. fucking I haven't shit. even seen it. I don't. Don't. Even... So I won't. I was like, <laughs> nope, no. Um, before we get into that, of course, we have to have a word from our sponsor. Calm your body down. All right, guys. So... I'm so sorry. I have it. I keep. <laughs> oh no, you're totally fine. What? I don't know if it was something about the weather today or what's going on. I woke up with the hiccups, and they were so bad that I had the worst heartburn all day long. So I've just I don't been know what's off. going on. I've with, just been like, all today. of it. Today's been just a weird. Yeah, we've vibe. had all this rain. It's been and a weird vibe. There's Mercury's been like this looming Powerade and, and the Gatorade <laughs> and Venus is in flytrap and <laughs> there's a lot going on. There's guys. just there's I feel you ever have those moments where your head just feels clouded, like just really clouded. That's kind of how yes. I feel right now. I'm also a bit sleep deprived, yes. so it's kind of like, like a lingering. Oh yeah, and you're like yeah. But I'm just like you sleep. guys didn't see the face, but you know I'm you know sleep happy, sleep happy. Well, sleep happy. There you nope. go. That's there a it total is. thing. That is a total, total, total. Anyway, thing. go ahead. Tell you know what else can get you sleep happy? Calm your body down, bad boss. Thank you. Um. So, guys, the lemonade, the blueberry, bleh. the <laughs> we are Take we okay too. Are we okay? Take I don't two. think we're okay. The blueberry we're... lemonade bath bombs. Take two. Got it. Um, they are incredible, guys. Made with real dry blueberries. They smell incredible. The look is amazing. I was so happy with how they came out. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're gonna try more um fruit scents, especially with summer, and um, kind of see how that will go. But for now, we've got those av- available. The um, of course, the uh, chamomile lavender ones smell great too those are going to be those have been another favorite um the orange basil ones another great smell so um calm your body down on everything etsy social media instagram for now and uh yeah free shipping of course on everything so thanks again in <laughs> i'm sorry calm <laughs> your body down i was gonna say how long have you been waiting to Throw that one out there. In summer. Fucking love Frozen. Um. Oh my god, my brain just went blank. I'm so sorry. You're like. <laughs> Guys, I've been dog sitting this week. And um, Mercury is in the Powerade. And my head is just. There's a lot going on in my head right now. So my head's just kind of like. Like at all times, it's been a crazy. So, uh, <sighs> hopefully, you guys had a great um, Memorial weekend Day if you got the time off. Yes, I think what really kind of screwed me over 
was my husband took four days off. So it's basically like four days of nothing besides going out of town to see family, which was awesome. If you guys got to see family after paying a rama if you were separated oh my God, from family for a while the of auto. right um hopefully you got to see family i did it was awesome a lot of food so that was great um i got to see my yeah, girlfriend kind of so it's kind of like seeing family i guess right some people didn't see family some people worked some people did their thing whatever now my you know, mom was like me. you can come over to your grandma's and i'm like i have plans with my girlfriends If you didn't, not even so much family, friends, anybody, if you got to get together with people that yes. you possibly haven't seen because of COVID and it's been some time since you've seen them, you know, I know there was a lot of posts where people got together with people that they haven't seen in quite some time because, you know, finally everybody was vaccinated and especially if they had older relatives, they were finally able to see and have cookouts and feel comfortable and everything. So um, it was very <clears> weird <throat> going to Duncan today. And the woman at the drive-in, at the drive-thru did not have a mask on. So many people haven't had masks on. It, it's so, so weird. Ohio lifted the mandate a few days early, which I kind of figured. And um, my family lives in Indiana, and they'd already lifted theirs quite some time back anyway. But um, yeah, I'm still wearing a mask, but that's just my prerogative. And if anybody is that's still wearing different. one, you know, I mean, God bless you. That's up to us. That's the beauty of this country and the freedoms that we have. And you know, I, I have family that I want to protect and yeah, I've been vaccinated, but I still choose to wear a mask and it's definitely going to be a part of my routine from now on, especially around flu and allergy season. Cause I haven't been sick in over three years, knock on wood, and I'm keeping myself as healthy as possible and everybody around me as much as I can. So, you know, that's my reason for it. And if other people out there are great, and if you choose not to great, just stay the fuck away from me. Um, <laughs> That's all I got to say about I mean, that. stay the fuck away um, from me anyway. I don't like anyone. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of loving the social distancing shit. Like I said, I'm anti-social, so I was social distancing before it was cool. Right. <laughs> Listen, I went to Walmart to the grocery the other day, and I fucking swear I was going to pay for my shit, and this lady was literally hovering over me. I was like, ma'am. We like all of a sudden that's a thing now. We had somebody do that to do that at Aldi's to us um a couple of days ago, like before the weekend, like before Monday. It was Saturday. Is everybody we like oh Sunday we went and I was like, what the f uh, but what was crazy is everybody, majority of people shopping had masks on. Uh-huh. But it was like the social distancing thing just went to fuck all. And this lady was like up our asshole. And I was like, excuse me, ma'am? Like, I'm glad I didn't have to put my pin number in the fucking thing. She would have fucking seen it. Ma'am. Ma'am. Yeah, you don't need to be close enough that you can read my card. You also aren't and... wearing a mask right now. I was. But... Anyway, moving on. We'll be on the soapbox all day. I know. I know. <laughs> but like we're on. saying, for the ones that do great, you know, for the ones that don't, whatevs. You do just you. Just keep your distance. <laughs> just saying. Just, just, just. Can we talk show about Show me you're a millennial without showing. No, I can't. I can't show my ideas. <laughs> also, I don't even have a part. Mine will be activated later with this iced coffee, but that's okay. 
Mine was already. I may be depressed, but at least I've got iced coffee. But you're still depressed. (laughs) More espresso, less depresso. (laughs) I told my husband about that TikTok. Fucking TikTok. Funniest shit ever. Because I was like, dude, I feel you. I'm still depressed, but at least I have an iced coffee. More espresso, less depresso. And then I got personally attacked the other day when they were like, um, you need to eat something because coffee's not a meal. I was like, coffee is my breakfast. I was like, shut the fuck up. You can just get off my timeline right now. And thank you. (laughs) I hate when TikTok just attacks you like that. And you're like, ow. TikTok does do the attack. It does do the attack. Also, show of hands of how many people can just be on TikTok for like four hours at a time. I didn't think it would ever happen. I didn't even I download the fucking app. I made fun of people. And I've who liked lost TikTok. time. I have lost time. I'm like, I'm gonna eat something or I'm gonna take a nap. Four hours later. Actually, I haven't done four hours, at least two to three. I haven't hit a four-hour mark yet, but I know I've been at least two to three hours. That four-hour mark will really like, get you. what? Why? And then what's really funny is I've done this thing. Like, I actually did it last night. I was like, self-care night. Drink wine, eat Taco Bell, and watch a found footage Bigfoot movie. I planned on watching two. I started the second one, and I was like, I really want to watch TikTok. I've done that. And I got on TikTok. I've done that. And I watched TikTok until I went to bed. Yep. I've watched It was funny, too, because I was texting. I did that shit this morning. I wanted to watch a podcast, and then I wanted to watch another one after it. And 15 minutes into the second one. What are they talking about? No. And it was really funny, too, because, like, I was texting. I was messaging my girlfriend, and I was like, she was asking me, like, what I was up to. And I was like, I... Probably, I'm going to watch uh, another Bigfoot film and then I'm probably going to get on TikTok later. And literally within 15 minutes, I messaged her a TikTok and she goes, seems like you're on TikTok a little earlier than me. And I was like, shut up. I decided to go on TikTok. I'm like, look, I already attacked myself personally. Could you not? <laughs> and then we also decided that we are going to make a date, a quote unquote nap date, where we're not going to nap. We're going to watch TikToks. <laughs> Remember how we talked about we were going to do a nap date? And I was like, I think we'll probably just end up scrolling on TikTok most of the time. I said, this is what's going to happen. We're going to lay in bed together and we're going to fa- start falling asleep. And then I'm going to look over at you and be like, you want to watch TikTok? <laughs> it... Oh, it's so fucking people are, addic- oh. people are addicted to it. So addicted like to legit- all the things you do when you let me scroll on screen. And between the I was sheets- like, please tell me there's gonna be a remix because that song is like triggered. triggered. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Twitch, twitch, twitch. <laughs> she's twitch. like, she's like trying to tell me to stop, but she also can't because she's triggered. So God, she's like, so just- many, so many women in the early two thousands. <laughs> who were who were in their early twenties and the early two thousands just heard that song and was like ah <laughs> the pterodactyl screams heard across the nation. <laughs> so I feel a disturbance. <laughs> oh my god! 
I'm so and sorry. And it's always some guy. It was always because those fucking songs were always related to some guy that was a fucking douchebag, and that's Wait. what it all boils back to. What was the thing I sent you? I have to. I have to find it. Um. Nobody is born into liking BDSM. You hear closer by Nine Inch Nails as a teen, and that awakens the demon. That hurt. I felt royally attacked by that. Oh, I like the first time I heard that song. You I have was like, no... I had to look it up because I was like, is he saying I want to fuck you like an animal? You yep. have no idea how attacked I felt hearing that. I was like. Also, part of that song sounds like part of the soundtrack of Borderlands 2, and I think that's great. <laughs> Just when you read stuff online and you're like, okay, stop exposing all my secrets. When you think you're you the only one telling... who's done something, I guarantee you you're not. <sighs> Someone else has done it. I remember there were... I've the s- internet will expose your shit. It will expose your shit, <clears throat> and you'll be like, oh my god, there's other people. Lord. And part of you is like, it's kind of nice because you know you're not the only weirdo. But then the other part of you is like, how many more of us are out there? We are the weirdos, mister. (laughs) How many more of us are out there? (laughs) 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 Anyway. Project Poltergeist. So, which is hey, X Files is a good X Files oh, yeah. is a good intro to this too. Fucking <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so, guys, I came across this story. And, yeah, props to um, Becky for finding this. I came across this story and had to tell Casper about it because I was like, "This is fucking insane." I've literally never heard of this before, and it has all the making of a, of a movie. Which we'll get into later because hopefully, fingers crossed, Bloomhouse will make this happen and not fuck it up. Um, so <laughs> there was an article written in May of last year by Celia Blancafloor, and I am so sorry if I'm butchering her last name. Bitch, I just about um, went. That wasn't last year. That was this year. We lost a whole year. Yeah, that, it 2020 says- was a thing, guys. It actually was. Um, so she wrote an article for Medium.com. Um, entitled Project Poltergeist, which is what we're calling the episode. And it's about um, a series of unexplained events that terrified a young boy in 1960 New Jersey um, that apparently was the first purported haunting in a public housing project. So the article unearthed original interviews and thousands of pages of archival records to bring us this story um, about Ernie Rivers Jr., and I stumbled upon the story because the article inspired, um, I know you guys have heard me mention Scared to Death podcast before, and um, one of Dan's stories on the episode entitled Ernie Rivers Poltergeist, it was just a couple weeks ago, so you got, or I think in April is when <laughs> they recorded it. So, um, are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. No poltergeist. Just good? water. Just water. <laughs> just water. Okay. Don't. Don't die on me. Just choking. Um, like, don't die, please. Um, so Dan came across the story, Ernie Rivers Poltergeist is the episode from Scared to Death. Um, and he was inspired by this uh, article. And I, um, they record, or they release episodes Tuesdays at midnight. So I usually listen, listen to them on Wednesday mornings. And- um, Well, you don't stay up? This is, no. <laughs> I'm asleep. Um, they- 
because they've had stories that have legitimately scared the shit out of me, and I'm listening to it at like six o'clock in the morning, like uh, me turn, sending you that skin turn scream every at light at night. on, <laughs> turn every light on in the house. Um, but the episode was great, and the story was amazing, and I thought we have got to do an episode about this because, um, you know, Dan's their style on scared to death is definitely diff- different than ours as far as the way that they storytell. But um, if you guys do want to listen to that episode, uh, like I said, they're on YouTube, Spotify, they're everywhere, Scared to Death. And their episode was entitled Ernie Rivers Poltergeist. Um, Every time you say amazing. Ernie Rivers, for some reason, my brain goes, Boone River. Well, you know what fucks me up is because when I would type in Ernie on Google, it would bring up Ernie Hudson. <laughs> Who is amazing and one of my favorite Ghostbusters. Gotta love Ernie Hudson. We were actually just talking about uh, The Crow, and I always forget he's in that. Oh my god, I forgot he was in The Crow too. Yeah, he plays the cop. Is the cop a sinister? (laughs) That fucking movie. Oh Oh my my god. god. That fucking movie. It's amazing. So we're actually going to be reading um, Celia's article from Medium.com. Um, Scared to Death's episode just kind of skimmed over it and told it more in a story story, uh, style format, but we're just going to read verbatim from her article um, because it is told very well. The timeline is amazing and there is a plethora of information. So um, we hope you guys enjoy this. I really loved the story. And then we'll get into later about the uh, possible finger cr- uh, fingers crossed movie being made. So um, I don't know if you want to start. or I can okay. <laughs> You're like, oh, <laughs> let me get it all out and go. <laughs> May 6th of 1961, the year my mother was born. On the wow, evening, that's fifty years, sixty years ago. This she just year. turned sixty this year. Wow, yep. isn't that crazy? Wow. My my mom doesn't listen to this, so she's not gonna kill me for being like, my mom is sixty. My mom looks not a day over fifty. I'm I know my you, mother. She looks fantastic. My mother was one of these people who were like, don't tell people my age. My mom would be like that too, but when I tell them, and then they're like, oh my god, your mom is only yeah, and then mom that's when it's like, like yeah. take the compliment, it's man. because she. Take oh my god, why don't you just take the compliment? <laughs> Fucking vine. Anyway. Can't get away from it. On the evening of his 13th birthday, Ernie Rivers, shy and serious, was playing in his bedroom in an apartment in the Felix Fold housing development in Newark, New Jersey. That was a mouthful. And you said it, you pronounced it perfectly. Because <clears throat> it's pronounced, it's spelled F-U-L-D, but it's pronounced fold, like F-O-L-D. So, yeah. I did it right for once. You're like, I did it. Oh, well. Um, fuck. Loneliness had become routine for Ernie, even on his birthday. His no-nonsense grandmother, Mabel Clark, took care of housework in her bedroom. As she did, a glass jar on the top of a dresser on the opposite end of the room crashed into the floor. Mabel was shaken for a moment. The jar seemed to have moved by itself, then brushed it off. Ernie heard the noise from his room but didn't think much about it. On May 8th, <clears throat> Two days after the glass jar incident, Ernie and his grandmother were eating in the kitchen when six punch bowl cups in the living room connected by an open doorway to the kitchen came off the hooks on the wall and crashed to the floor one after the other. That's when it really started, Mabel later recalled. Everything started smashing, 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 <laughs> smashing. <laughs> I couldn't st- 
God thrashing. damn it. What was it? Thrashing. As soon as you... Smushing. Later that evening, several bodies. Nope. The bodies at the floor. Several bottles in the bathroom fell to the floor and shattered. I would like to apologize because my brain is that scattered right now. (laughs) So I'm just like, let me hyper focus. Hold on one second. I have been (laughs) on days of sleep deprivation, and let me tell you, this is what happens. Straight up. Yeah. It's like if there was a camera in my brain, it'd be like do, 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 do. Afro Circus Afro Circus Afro Circus Afro Circus my fucking brain. Because my brain has literally been like, do I want to watch an original GCOM movie or do I want to watch a horror movie? Watch this horror movie. I want to watch TikTok. It's on TikTok. Goes back to horror movie. No, I kind of want to watch a Disney show. No, I want to go back to my brain has been the last few days. TikTok, Instagram, paranormal activity. <laughs> paranormal activity. Jason Derulo. I'm sorry. <laughs> Toluca Heights. Stunned. <laughs> Mabel walked to the bathroom only to find its door closed, making the bizarre incident flatly impossible. Not knowing what else to do, she rushed into the bathroom to take down the remaining bottles, containers, and items from the medicine cabinet and place them on the floor. When a neighbor came to their door later, Mabel, still reeling, tried to pretend everything was normal. The three of them, Mabel, Ernie, and neighbor Yetta Mandel, were chatting over the hum of the television in the background when a cologne bottle from the bathroom suddenly darted into the living room. I'm so sorry, that's not funny, but I'm just picturing, like, fucking. it's zigzagging in midair. The fact that it wasn't just thrown, it was zigzagging in midair. Turning a jig in the air, as a frightened Yetta described it, before shattering against the floor. The air filled with its strong scent. Yetta also watched as a glass decanter began moving by itself to the edge of the refrigerator. She raced to catch it just before it fell. Mabel now had no choice but to come clean to Yetta about what had been happening the last two days. As she did, a lamp in the living room spontaneously shattered the last straw. Shattered the last straw. Mabel and Ernie fled, staying elsewhere for the night. A statuesque, I'm so sorry, Got that it. word would, did not resonate. A statuesque, self-sufficient, and reserved woman, Mabel did not like to draw attention to herself. She especially didn't want the housing authority catching wind of what was going on for fear that she and her grandson would be labeled unruly, kicked out of the apartment, and probably accused of lying. Like many metropolitan areas in the United States in the 1960s, Newark's public housing reinforced systemic segregation and was infested with racist practices against African American families such as theirs. But Mabel could only hide this for so long. Their lives had just begun to be turned upside down by what would come to be called the Project Poltergeist. The first haunting documented by parapsychologists in a housing project in the United States. <clears throat> that was one of the other really interesting things about this story in mm-hmm. regards to it being a black family and the projects but literally right in the middle of the civil rights movement and so many things going on in the 1960s um i mean if you you had to think during this time when this happened in 1961 black people weren't even allowed to vote so 
racism was still actually was I mean it's not that long ago. It's terrible <laughs> still, you know, to this day. I mean, my, mom was, that, but my mom was ten, you know, my dad was a kid. It's just the sixties was a bad time. Really, really bad time. I yeah. mean you, and it, that's not that long ago. No. Sixty years ago. That's yeah. it. All of us have relatives now that lived through every bit of it. So that's what made this story even more interesting was how racism could play such a central factor. I mean, not only just in skepticism, period, but how racism could play such a central factor in people not believing uh, Mabel or Ernie. Um, So to continue on with the story, a dark turn in the family's history had led Ernie to live with his grandmother. This is a really... This is a really crazy part of the story, and this is what really leads to kind of the bulk of the story as far as um, all of the poltergeist activity. <clears throat> Ernie's younger years were spent in Montclair, New Jersey, with his mother and father, Ann Clark, and Ernest Rivers Sr. He also went by Ernie, in a cozy apartment on the third floor of a multifamily house. Ernie Sr. was a fighter in the Golden Gloves, an especially dangerous amateur boxing circuit with heavy mob ties in 1948 and 1949 while mostly working as a construction worker. Anne mostly stayed home to take care of Ernie. She was frequently sick. Because the couple had no insurance, they usually couldn't afford doctor visits, and even when she did get checked, the causes of her condition often remained mysterious. Less than two weeks before Christmas in 1956, Anne had fallen ill again. After watching television for a few hours, Ernie Sr. and Anne retired to their bedroom around 10 o'clock that night. Ernie, who was eight years old at the time, was asleep in the other room. I need to go to the doctor, Anne said. The only extra money I have is for Ernie's Christmas gifts, Ernie's, Ernest Sr. had said. And I did want to give a disclaimer at this part of the story that um, at the time, any money... Ernie was a prize fighter, but he had owed, and this was something that his wife didn't know... He had owed so much money to the mob from fights that he was actually throwing fights to get money to pay them back. So any extra money that he did have was paying off his mob debts that his wife didn't know about to keep basically him and his family alive because they would have killed all of them. And um, Anne was legitimately sick. They possibly think that she could have had cancer just from a lot of her symptoms, but because she had no insurance and because most of the money was going back to the mob to pay off his debts, Ernie would never take her to the doctor. And um, basically they kind of started to become a burden on each other because she kind of started figuring something was going on. And he, at this point was just trying to keep himself and his family alive. So they just started to kind of see each other as a burden. So this was just sort of the beginning of the end anyway. So when Ernie had said to her that there was only extra money for, uh, when Ernest Sr. had said to her there was only extra money for Ernie's Christmas gifts, the argument escalated. And the last thing that Ernest Sr. said to her was, you're nothing but a doctor, Bill, to me. And a nightmare that she had had that night, Anne had dreamt that her husband was attempting to kill her with a gun. Stirred awake by the dream in the middle of the night, Anne looked under the bed and found the suitcase where her husband kept his 38 caliber revolver, the same one from her dream, in case of emergencies. Anne had pried the case open, took the gun out, and turned the radio on quietly before drifting back to sleep for about an hour. Waking up again at five o'clock in the morning, she stared at her husband for a few hours, or for a few moments, rather. Ernest, are you tired of me? She asked him. When he didn't respond, 
and cocked the gun before shooting him twice in the chest. Ernest Sr. died instantly. The noise woke up one of the other residents of the house, and Anne ran downstairs saying that her husband had shot himself after they got into an argument. Detectives took Anne to the police station. After three hours, she confessed to the murder. In her statement to the police, Anne said she worried that her husband had plans to kill her, recounting the dream that she had had right before she shot him and his comment that she was only a doctor's bill to him. On May 29, 1957, five months after the murder, Anne was sentenced to a term of 18 to 22 years at the Clinton Reformatory for Women, which is now known as, as the Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women in Clinton, New Jersey. Shortly after Ernie arrived at the Felix Fold Housing... Oh, I could not get that fucking word out. Too many damn words. At the Felix Fold Housing Development on 125 Rose Street to live with his maternal grandparents in their first floor four-bedroom apartment. Young Ernie continued to experience confusing changes. First, his grandfather passed away, and then in April 1961, his mother, Anne, escaped from the minimum security institution. She was still at large when the events at Mabel's apartment in Newark began to happen a month later. In the startling days after Ernie's 13th birthday, he and Mabel tallied close to 20 incidents involving plates, mugs, light bulbs, mirrors, and other objects falling or flying around the apartment. I'm sorry, there should also be something noted if this isn't mentioned later on, that the height of poltergeist activity tends to happen around the time that children reach puberty. So it is not much of a coincidence at all that this activity was at the height around Ernie's 13th birthday. So always keep that in mind if you have teenage kids and a lot of crazy shit starts happening around your house. Even if they're young kids and a lot of crazy ass shit. If they say they have an invisible friend and they say you can't see them, look into that. Anyway, ironically, because you know, Toby. Well, I had invisible friends, but I had invisible friends. And I knew but they... they were spirits, but it was never anything. Really, what you have to look out for is when your child tells you things like, uh, "The invisible friend is telling me not to talk to you," or telling me not to tell you what we talk about. Like, if your kid is being really secretive and saying that, like, this friend is telling me not to tell you things or not to say things to you or not to talk to you. That is a fucking demon. And you need to get your house cleansed, your child cleansed, all of that shit. Like take a bath in holy water. <laughs> all of it. Like that that is what you need to look out for. When they're more poltergeist activity and demonic activity are completely different. Yes. Because poltergeist now we'll get into more of Ernie's story of why it possibly is tied to a person, but typically poltergeist activity is manifested from the child it's more to do with energy rather than a particular spirit um it's energy not a being exactly and <clears throat> at the height of puberty with all of those hormonal changes a child at that age can typically manifest more of that poltergeist energy than say a younger child or someone that's older they're just more of a beacon for that. And typically with poltergeist activity, it's, um, you know, just like in this, stuff will break, lights will turn on. And it's typically a lot of physical things will happen. Whereas when it's something more spiritual, you're you're seeing shadow figures, you're hearing sounds. It's uh, 
uh, uh, whispers. Um, was the other thing I was going to say too? Uh, orbs, different things like that. So it's not anything like physically happening where like doors are closing, lights are turning off and on, things are moving. It's usually like it can shadows, be, orbs. It can be those things, but <sighs> typically it's shadows, orbs, things of the uh, apparitions. Things of that nature, mists, fogs, things, things like that. It's more of how it's manifested. Um, but yeah, that's a big thing to look out for if your kids, if your kids have invisible friends, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just when they flat out start telling you, no, my friend is telling me not to talk to you. My friend is telling me not to tell you what we talk about. If they become super secretive, no, absolutely not. That is a fucking demon. Hell no. What's the best way that they're going to come to your child that your child will trust and believe them? They'll come to your child as a child. Or an old person. Yeah, more trusting. Yep. At one point, Ernie sat doing his schoolwork at the dining room table when he thought he saw movement from the side of the stove. After he caught the motion again out of oh, the corner. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Are we on a dip? I think, I thought, wait. We're on the third, the third part. In the starting. In the starting. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Like, it's so good. She's like, I have no memory of this. I was like, did we? What? <laughs> oh, okay, anyway, I'm sorry. I'm like, I have no memory whatsoever of what just happened. We are going to be okay. We're going to be fine. We are. We're fine. We're going to be fine. At one point, Ernie sat doing his schoolwork at the dining room table when he thought he saw movement from the side of the stove. After he caught the motion again out of the corner of his eye, he watched as he later reported... One of the pepper shakers from the top of the stove started to levitate above the surface before rapidly floating over and landing beside him. No. Soon afterwards, according to family accounts, a glass floated from the kitchen sink and crashed into the living room floor. No. Which eats, eats, with each terrifying occurrence, the two residents grew more perplexed and afraid. Twice during that time, Ernie and Mabel left to stay with her daughter and son-in-law, Ruth and William Hargwood, at their house in Belleville. The next town over, but they could only accommodate them for short stretches. Mabel cherished Mabel cherished Ernie, calling him an unbelievably good, good, a good boy. But he presented a frustrating case study in non-communication. The boy who had been through so much upheaval would never acknowledge feelings, feeling sadness, fear, or for that matter, anything at all. He mostly replied to his grandmother's questions with a bland, I don't know, or yes. He seemed to harbor secrets. I don't know what goes on inside of him. I just can't explain it, Mabel later lamented. She wanted him to be more open to love. The specter of Anne and Ernest Sr.'s tragedy looked everywhere, lurked everywhere, even as Anne herself lurked. Nobody knew where after her escape from prison. It wasn't long before the residents and the public started to hear about what was happening at Mabel's apartment. Neighbors reported unusual noises. It was only a matter of time before the press picked up on it. On May 11th, Mabel's son-in-law, William, and another relative were visiting when a Newark News Newark, Newark News reporter, Douglas Eldridge, stopped by. As the five of them chatted in the kitchen, they heard a cup fall loudly crash in the pantry. Just half an hour before, Eldridge had seen the cup sitting on a sturdy bookshelf. The reporter turned pale. It was impossible for the cup to have fallen on its own without some sort of push. At the time, Ernie had been lying in his bed while the adults sat in the kitchen. I was laughing when I first came here, William admitted, not laughing anymore. A distraught Mabel revealed that it was the fifth incident of the day. Reluctantly opening up to the reporter, she recounted how a small mirror, a bottle of antiseptic, and a light bulb had all crashed and fallen at different times throughout the day. Ernie also described watching another light bulb unscrew itself before crashing on the floor. 
that's one thing that gets me not only is it crashing on the floor but actually watching it like unscrew itself that is insane to me reporters dubbed the events of the housing at the housing complex the project poltergeist citing paranormalist belief that poltergeist usually fed on the psychic energy of adolescents Journalists eagerly connected the events to the presence of Ernie. For skeptics who suspected a hoax, the 13-year-old boy seemed the likely source of mischief. Everyone seemed to agree Ernie had something to do with the mysterious occurrences, though he insisted he had no clue what caused them. <clears throat> when learning that earlier documented poltergeists tended to stop after a few months, Mabel baked as a... Bob. Baked. She decided to bake. It was time. Yeah. <laughs> Balked as did a visiting relative. A couple months, the relative said, turning to Mabel, why? He'd be in Greystone Psychiatric Hospital by then. The housing development opened an investigation. Irving Laskowitz, the tenant, rel tenant relations division director of the Newark Housing Authority, took charge of the inquiry. In the eyes of many African-American residents, Newark authorities often looked for excuses to kick tenants out of the public housing at which point they would be at the mercy of predatory landlords who charge as much as triple the market value for rents. I don't want to move unless I have to, Mabel insistently told Irving. I don't think this is going to go on forever. It can't go on forever, replied Irving, who was dismissive of any idea of a poltergeist under his watch. Pretty soon you'll run out of things to break. Dick. <laughs> yeah. Admittedly, perplexed officials swarmed through the four-room apartment. The Newark News reported of the investigation by Irving and his team the officials examined every inch of the apartment, as well as the surrounding units and basement. There must be some kind of magnetism in the apartment, Irving says sarcastically. One of Irving's aides added, maybe it's the moon. We better check on that. Despite their snide commentary, Irving admitted Mabel had a clear record of the previous 20 years. They also found no evidence of trickery or any physical cause for the seemingly invisible force. After that, things only got worse. Irving later sighed, I only wish we had. The NHA had to acknowledge that a strange, unexplainable phenomena hung over the apartment. They accepted the services of Edward Del Russo, a balding contractor and self-proclaimed exorcist. I love how they added balding. Like, had to make sure you knew. We had to know. <laughs> Referred to by one of the housing officials as an amateur house de haunter, Del Russo said he had the ability to work with unseen powers. We all have it, he added, but few people use it. He came by the apartment to banish the invisible forces, which he identified as a quote-unquote lost soul, trying to get a message across to Mabel. He burned a beeswax candle on their living room coffee table and declared the poltergeist banished, but the forces proved to be immune to his attempt or maybe became agitated because of them. In the days after Del Russo's demonstration, the press reported the disturbances returned with a vengeance. A deep fear took hold of Mabel and spread throughout the housing complex that the spirit of Ernest River Sr. might be responsible for the disturbances, trying to get Ernie away from her. Ernie, who had already been in the target, who had already been a target of bullying in eighth grade at West Kenny Junior High School, had always tried to be strong about it, but now he seemed even more likely to be ostracized. Luckily, the other kids at the Felix Fold complex stuck, stuck by him, especially one boy with whom Ernie was best friends. They continued to play in the courtyard and go to the movies, but these attempts at normalcy were a facade. They needed help fast and needed more than a part-time exorcist. Balding I don't think that guy that. was part-time. I think he was just a fucking fake. And you know, balding one of that. Holy shit! I'm just gonna burn a beeswax candle, and it's all gone. You're good. I love it when they do that in shows and movies when they're like, "Oh, we just go through and cleanse one time of this demon or whatever," and I'm like, "It doesn't. It doesn't." It, it it doesn't 
Anyway. So the media spread the word beyond Newark until it eventually reached Dr. Charles D. Reg. I will say it's W E W R E G E. It's kind of Reg. Reg, maybe? I don't know. I could we'll go we with, all we'll know go that I cannot pronounce anything. We'll go with so. Reg. Um, a Newark native and respected assistant professor in the Department of Management at Rutgers University with a long-standing interest in parapsychology. After hearing about the curious case, he jumped at the chance to potentially interact with an actual poltergeist. German for noisy spirits, if you needed to know what the word for poltergeist meant. Researchers and professionals in the field have begun to, re to refer formally to such phenomena as recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK. Reports of objects moving seemingly at random have been claimed for centuries and linked to larger supernatural occurrences. In one case from 1846, witnesses and scientists observed a girl who, as she entered a room, would cause objects to scatter as though physically shoved. As paranormal researchers began to define the category of RSPK, by studying historical and contemporary cases, they theorized that unseen forces interacted on a human agent, often an adolescent, which manifested in a physical environment through disordered movements of commonplace objects at hand. As Dr. Rige, who was 37 at the time, had a diminutive stature and warm demeanor, he planned to come to the apartment to observe Ernie the night of May 12th. Earlier that day, Mabel was in the apartment with Yetta when an iron that weighed five pounds flew into her room. Ernie had been in the bathroom in a different part of the apartment. That night, Dr. Rige arrived and questioned them. Yetta told Rige that she had saw the iron in the air and noticed that the cord was stretched out stiff behind it. Yetta would also describe to the professor witnessing the cover of a sugar bowl lift up and fall to the floor. The stuff came on like gangbusters, Mabel added to these accounts. A salt cellar, which is a large container of salt, launched from a shelf like a missile into Ernie's back. Lord. Yetta also recalled how she, Mabel, and Ernie entered the apartment and while turning on the light saw a, saw a bookcase topple over. The bookcase, according to Mabel and Ernie, that had already fallen over a couple of other times before. In another startling moment, the TV overturned as Ernie was turning the key to enter the apartment. Mabel then began turning the TV to face the wall, hoping that that would prevent it from breaking if it were to fall again. Reese, who had trained as an engineer, studied the apartment for over the course of two days. Just before midnight on the second day, a loud knocking at the door startled Dr. Reese and Ernie. We want to see the boy with the flying objects, a voice yelled from the other side. Several more people were heard in the background. Some were echoing the first voice in a taunting way while others laughed. Dr. Reese and Ernie waited in silence, hoping the group of young, drunk men would grow tired and leave. Then a rock sailed through an open window into the apartment. Reese pulled Ernie into the kitchen to protect him. Just as Reese was about to pick up the phone to call the police, a glass from the top of the counter fell to the floor. Reese looked at Ernie, who was visibly upset from the commotion and loud noises outside, standing near the counter. Reese put his arm around Ernie to comfort him. While Reese was on the phone with the police, a crash came from the living room. A lamp had fallen off the table and toppled, on, toppled onto the floor about 15 feet away. Can you call my uncle and ask him to come get me? Ernie pleaded softly. The boy, who had tried to remain so stoic, now appeared terrified. Dr. Reese, who had been who had still been holding Ernie at this point, let go. Suspicious by vocation, he examined the area for any sign of trickery. I checked the remains of the lamp and the cord to see if it had any strings or wires attached, he recalled later, but he found nothing. With Ernie having been by Reese's side throughout the night, the investigator ruled out any possibility that Ernie was playing a prank. 
By the time the police arrived, the group of belligerent men were long gone. Though the white Rutgers professor may have not realized it, even calling the Newark police could be hazardous for African-Americans at the time when the city was a tinderbox of racial tension. Interactions with police could range from antagonism to violence. This time, the cops leaned toward indifference, leaving the housing complex after finding no sign of, disrupt of disruptive chanters. Ernie's uncle, William, came by and listened to the details from Dr. Reich and Ernie. The three of them were cleaning up the pieces of the broken lamp when an ashtray leaped from the end of the table next to them, grazed William's chin, and flew into Mabel's bedroom, landing on the floor. Dr. Reich immediately looked over at Ernie, who was holding a dustpan with both hands collecting the leftover lamp parts. William cried out from the living room. This time, a pepper shaker had struck him in the back. Growing anxious, the three of them prepared to leave the apartment. Ernie stepped out first, and as William was turning off the kitchen and living room lights, William yelled out yet again. A salt shaker had struck him on the back of the head, seeming to slow down as it did, before accelerating and smashing against the living room wall and landing on the floor. As the two men rushed to get out of there as fast as they could, another ashtray on a bookshelf near the door came off the shelf and landed between William and Dr. Reich. Ruling out rigged objects, Reich, Re Reich records elevated, Reich's records, I'm sorry, elevated the events to the level of a confirmed case of RSPK. In your defense, that literally is the word record. I mean, it is. Record, <laughs> record. I was like, wait, let me It's literally like, look at the record. Sentence. It like, read, read. Exactly. Record, record. The English language is stupid. Oh my God. <laughs> um, a few days later, it's like understatement of the century. A few days later, a reporter from the Newark Star-Ledger and the assistant director of the N of the NHA came by the apartment to investigate again. While there, the two men heard a noise in the hallway and watched as a pill bottle on a shelf blew and landed in Mabel's room. The reporter, sensitive to suspicions that Ernie had to be behind the incidents, documented that with Ernie in his room at the time, he would have had to teleport back and forth to have been responsible for the act. When the reporter interviewed neighbors and witnesses, nobody could explain what was happening in the Clark apartment. Reich firmly believed the energy of the adolescent was the linchpin of the case. In the tradition of scholarly literature on RSPK, Reich decided on an experiment. He asked Ernie to choose a target for the RSPK forces, as he recorded in the case files. Ernie chose a mustard jar that he put on the kitchen table. 20 minutes later, while Ernie was in the living room and Dr. Reich and William were in the kitchen, the mustard jar left the table and moved over the heads of the two men, crashing against the wall. Reege noticed yet another oddity that defied physics. The jar, he reported, seemed to shatter before it reached the wall. Oh, snap. <laughs> that's what happened. Well, yeah, that's that's what ha That's the really crazy thing with psychokinesis. It's mm -hmm. like... It's like Ernie is doing this without even knowing he's doing this. Like, he has no control right. over it. It's just he's being used as a battery, mm -hmm. essentially. Energy. It's just his yep. energy is being used to manifest all of this. So in early September 1961, the massive Henry Hudson Hotel in Manhattan's bustling Columbus Circle played host for three days to a unique group of visitors from around the world. The Parapsychological Association Convention, a blur of dark suits and floral dresses, between participating in symp symposiums? Symposiums. And lectures, Dr. William G. Roll, who was the director of this... Cyclical? Thank you. 
Research Foundation at Duke University and considered a leader in their community met Charles Riege. Roll had been reading about the purported poltergeist in New York, Newark when it first became public in May, and after crossing paths with Dr. Riege, the case now captured his interest. The German-born Roll, 35, who had fought for the Dutch resistance in World War II before pursuing paranormal studies at Oxford, where he penned a thesis on theory and experiment in psychial research. A dapper dresser with an exotic accent and a love for nature, he commanded every room he entered. On September 9th, the last day of the convention, Roll ventured into Newark to visit the apartment for himself. When he arrived, he learned that Ernie had been staying for a few weeks at his aunt and uncle's place, where no disturbances had been reported. Whatever was happening, a nexus seemed to exist involving the apartment 125 at Rose Street, Ernie and Mabel. Roll asked Mabel to bring Ernie back to the apartment so the professor could observe him there. Roll, a pioneering researcher and prolific writer on paranormal subjects, had been the one to coin the term RSPK a few years earlier when the Herman family in Long Island reported unexplained phenomena in their home. The Hermans had two adolescent children. The Roll believe the Roll and Roll believed that inner turmoil in the family's young members had unleashed a poltergeist, a situation eerily similar to what is now being experienced by Ernie and his family. Once Ernie returned to stay at Mabel's apartment, Roll visited them multiple times. At one point, Roll was in the hall outside the apartment when he heard a commotion. According to Ernie, an ashtray hit the power button on a remote control, shutting off the TV while the boy was in the middle of watching something. As per his notes, Roll rushed into the apartment to witness an ashtray still moving on the floor. Ernie was seated quietly and calmly on a couch on the opposite end of the room. Another time when Roll was inside the apartment, money went missing from Mabel's purse, with the visiting professor and Mabel herself suspecting Ernie might have swiped it, however uncharacteristic of him, but his pockets were empty. When the boy took the trash into the basement, he found money strewn around the halls, including one bill worth in half, all told up to adding to $2 more than what had gone missing, as if the forces were toying with them, this time trying to direct the adults' ire and blame, and blame yeah. against Ernie. Emotions ran high. Just as Roll felt he was coming closer to figuring out what he was causing the disruptions, Mabel grew agitated with the whole investigation. She told Roll and Ernie both to leave the apartment. Roll reassured Mabel nobody would get hurt, but as Roll began to debate with Mabel, something hard hit him in the back of the head. It was a bottle. Roll had been facing the direction of Ernie, who remained calm and composed in the same position on the sofa. Ernie later revealed that a bottle struck him, too, when he walked out of the apartment. Sending Ernie back to his aunt and uncle was no simple matter of convenience, but also of safety. Accounts of extended poltergeists from the same era described conditions that got so bad they became deadly. In the 1960s, a young girl, I almost said name Brazil, in Brazil, began to be tormented by strange movements of stones and bricks in and around rooms she entered. These incidents turned into an all-out assault. When, according to reports, her food was tainted when poison fell into it, and she was suffocated by a series of objects that landed on her face while she slept. When Ernie's aunt and uncle no longer had the resources for him to stay with them, he moved back into Mabel's apartment. In the coming months, the two reported being terrorized by the poltergeist. The TV set, the washing machine, the refrigerator, and even a kitchen cupboard crashed into the floor. Ernie lived in a constant state of terror. Yeah, I would fucking say he did. Most of these larger objects were the property of the Newark Housing Authority, or NHA. In his notes, Dr. Roll recorded the very practical impact from being a family problem, the poltergeist now mushroomed into a problem for the housing project, and thereby the county authorities. 
The Herman family of Long Island, whom Roll had studied in 1958 until their own experiences with poltergeists faded, reached out to express their support to Mabel and Ernie. Keep up your courage, Lucille Herman urged, and don't panic. The Hermans had been on the cover of Life magazine, and years later their case was said to have inspired the classic horror film Poltergeist. <clears throat> While receiving their share of press, Ernie and Mabel had turned into subjects of rumor and innuendo. Looking back, it, comes it becomes difficult not to sense racial bias in the way the compassion for the Hermans, who were white and middle class, contrasted with the suspicion and distrust of Ernie and his family. The tenants at 125 Rose Street, some of whom had witnessed incidents, generally believed the family's accounts but feared a malevolent spirit. With nowhere left for Ernie to stay, Mabel brought him to the Newark police station and begged them to take him in to protect him. They refused. They said there was nothing they could do for him unless he broke the law or was deemed mentally unstable. Mabel brought Ernie to the house of one friend and then another. At each house, a disturbance reportedly occurred and nobody would allow Ernie to stay. The forces, whatever their cause, whatever they were, had broken free of the confines of the housing project and crescendoed. For the NHA, for the NHA policy dictated removing problems, or at least shuffling them elsewhere. Irving, the division director, worked closely with a casework supervisor from the Essex County District Office and a representative from the New Jersey Board of Child Welfare. Excuse me, I'm sorry. A decision was made. Ernie would be removed from Mabel's custody and placed in a group home. God. This poor kid has been... Literally, I was like, this kid. fucking hell and back. I mean... God. He was in another room when his father was murdered by his own mother. <laughs> and then, not even a few years later, has to go through all of this trauma at home with his grandmother. And his grandmother is just at her wit's end. And of course, race played a role that nobody would believe them and be terrified and completely would react with prejudice. And you would think that it's such an awful thing to think about him being placed in a group home, but what else was going to happen? I mean, this was ruining his grandmother's life too. Like, it's just awful. So Dr. Roll saw a unique chance to more deeply explore a once-in-a-lifetime case, but he was operating under a ticking clock. RSPK cases tended to end abruptly, which investigators believe made them so elusive to observe. Consulting with Charles Rige and experts at NYU who did an examination of Ernie, Roll scrambled to arrange a trip that December for Ernie to come to the parapsychology laboratory at Duke University. Since the events seemed to begin and intensify when Mabel was around, they wanted to make sure she was present too. Ernie and his grandmother had not seen each other for a month when they were reunited to go to North Carolina. If Roll felt pressure to make a discovery, so did Ernie. This could be his last chance to have an authority figure advocate for returning him to his grandmother. The parapsychology laboratory, which had been established in 1935, had occupied the second floor of what was known as the West Duke Building, a grand neoclassical structure of white-pressed brick. The winter afternoon they arrived in Durham, Ernie and Mabel were walking down a hallway outside of Roll's office when a book that was on Roll's desk fell into the hallway floor. The poltergeist was still active, Roll concluded, and was ready to be confronted on laboratory territory. Roll brought them to the Jack Tar Hotel where a room waited for them. Once Roll returned home, he received messages from Mabel that things had devolved at the hotel. When Roll rushed back to their room, he arrived at the site of Ernie on the floor with his arms around the television. Ernie and Mabel reported that an ashtray had fallen and that the glass smashed while Ernie was inside the bathroom. Ernie described seeing the toothpaste float from the shelf into the bathtub. Then Mabel related how a lamp that she put on the floor to avoid from breaking, flipped over, and the phone fell down. 
That was the moment when Ernie had grabbed the television to keep it from falling over. Roll rushed Ernie to his own house to stay there instead of the hotel. Dr. Gather Pratt, another parapsychologist who worked at Duke, ended up sneaking into the hotel to repair the damage. Laboratory observations began on Duke campus um, on December 18th with a bevy of investigators involved. State I feel really stupid, but I cannot find where you are. <laughs> I'm, I'm there, having... Oh, right there. Right there. You're right Okay, there. I, I was like... I found it. My brain... Like, boom, right there. I was like... Like me earlier. Like, like we earlier. Early. I was like, I'm trying. I'm trying. Right there. <laughs> um, Jesus. Yeah, reading this more, I'm like, God, now this kid's a fucking lab rat. I mean, I get it, but see, the, the problem is, is he's right. Um, psychokinetic and poltergeist activity in can tend to end immediately, like as quick as it starts, it can end just as fast, mm -hmm. which leads it to even more skepticism from non-believers because then they're like, well, there you go. They finally got sick of faking it, so after a year or a couple of years or whatever, then that's it. And that's the worst part about it because you have no choice but to either live with it or put yourself up as a lab rat, quote unquote, to try to find some something that can verify it and possibly find where it's coming from. Um, so again, like I said, laboratory observations began on December 18th with a bevy of investigators involved. Stakes and tension mounted as details of what happened at the hotel and at Roll's office were collected. The fact that even the parapsychology laboratory failed to inhibit the poltergeist, Roll later reflected, offered an opportunity for closer observation than we had been able to achieve so far. Technicians placed cold metal discs on Ernie's head as a neurology professor tested his brain waves. At first, the neurologist concluded Ernie's tests fell into the normal range, but after reviewing the results, he noticed odd spikes of activity he was uncertain how to classify. Dr. John Altrochi, professor of medical psychology, herded in a group of graduate students to interview and observe Ernie. Altrochi became fascinated by the boy. He is the only person I have ever examined with no discrepancy between himself and his ideal self. That meaning, Ernie did not have an idealized version of himself that he wished to be present. Further supporting conclusions shared across the board by investigators that Ernie was not trying to deceive anyone about his role or his understanding of the phenomena. Altrochi considered how difficult it must have been for Ernie to be an African-American boy being examined by strange white people in hospitals and laboratories 500 miles from home. Oh, how sweet of you to acknowledge that. The psychiatry professor's notes <laughs> like, also acknowledged, just, yeah. and they, these were his notes, mind you. They said, I have not examined many Negro boys his age. Well, I would fucking hope not. Duke was still an all-white student body and faculty a year away from becoming the last major university to integrate to integrate its campus. Altrochi observed that the bashful Ernie tended to keep all of his emotions, positive and negative, bottled up to the point where they seemed ready to burst at any moment. The questioners pushed Ernie to the point that tears filled his eyes, even as he continued to deny his feelings. In a word association test, Ernie responded to particular word. Ernie responded in particular to the words birthday and home, evoking the first report of the poltergeist on the evening of his birthday at Mabel's apartment, which was another in a long line of places he called home that had a pattern of being ripped away from him. The experts observed that just as Mabel wished Ernie was more open to affection, Ernie longed for a level of attention and love that he was not given. 
or could not be given considering all the losses of the last few years. A father lost to murder, a mother lost to prison, and a grandfather lost to death. Ernie's strong exterior broke. He admitted that the kids picking on him at school made him angry. The tack turned boy wouldn't have recounted the specifics, but the cruel taunting was easy enough to imagine. Look at that police car, Ernie. Are they chasing your mom? However much he tried to suppress it, a storm of sadness and fury brewed inside him. Brewed inside him. Even darker secrets spilled out. Ernie described the angriest he had ever been in his life as coming in the wake of the father beating him as, as his father beating him as a child. Altrochi's case notes present a fascinating snapshot of inner turmoil. It became clear at an early age, no matter how furious he was, he felt completely helpless and unable to express or act upon his anger. It is a, it is as if this way of dealing with or not dealing with anger has persevered and generalized so that it pervades his personality now. What else became clear was that Ernie had quietly lived through a childhood of explosive violence. Altrochi has team and his team delved further into the impact of the tragedy of Ernie's parents on his inner life. It's interesting to note, the case records point out, that his grandmother describes him as timid like his mother, so it is conceivable that he has the idea that if he should ever let any anger out, that he would kill someone like his mother did. Oh man, this poor kid. With such a breakthrough and the psychological workup. I feel like felt, this entire thing should just be called Poor Ernie. I mean, it really is. <laughs> it it's turns like God. listening to that first podcast, so much of it, like it's terrifying, but it's also incredibly sad mm-hmm. because this kid has had such an awful, 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 awful childhood. Um, With such a breakthrough and the psychological workup, it fell on the paranormal experts to accelerate their own examination. A suite was prepared with a one-way mirror to an observation chamber. Dr. Gaither, who had been the one to clean the visitor's hotel room, volunteered to observe from the other side while Ernie and Mabel were placed in the meeting room and asked to wait. Do you After think it was Bill Gaither? Probably. I wonder how many people went, who? Gaither, it's Gaither Pratt, so I guess they were just calling him by his first name. After a while, Mabel left for a short period. Dr. Gaither watched as Ernie took two measuring tapes from the table and quickly hid them under his shirt. When Mabel returned and left again, Ernie threw the two tapes after her. Not seeing Ernie throw the tapes, Mabel called for Roll and told him another unexplained event had occurred. When confronted, Ernie denied throwing the tapes at his grandmother. In that moment, everything turned upside down. For the skeptics who had been circling the case, it would have seemed all that was left was to stamp the whole thing of fraud and declare that Ernie indeed had been fooling everyone all along. For believers, they'd have to struggle to reconcile that this was the moment that this moment with those others that Ernie could not possibly have manipulated. The biggest twist was yet to come. The Duke scientists swarming around Ernie came from across the university and other institutions with experts experts chiming in from departments ranging from electrical engineering to mathematics. They initiated a polygraph and numerous other intensive tests, including the Weschler Intelligence Scale for Children. The Rorschach test. Thanks. <laughs> I was like, Worcestershire? The thematic... Fancy way of saying the ink blot test. <laughs> the, um, the thematic apperception test, the figure drawing exercises. From these tests, Roll and his colleagues referred to Ernie as a daydreamer with below average intelligence, but also showed he had a latent ability to excel. The polygraph test was conducted by Roll with the professor's full knowledge that Ernie threw those tapes at his grandma. First, he asked Ernie simple questions like, did you take a plane to Durham? Did you go to public school when you were living in Newark? 
Ernie struggling to keep up with so many tests slumped down in his seat. I'm sleepy, he said. Just sit straight forward, lift your head, and relax, Rule said. This led into direct questions about specific incidents, including the one from May when the lamp fell in the living room while Dr. Wedge had his arm... Wedge? Reesh had his arm around him. Ernie said that he didn't know how it happened, and the polygraph confirmed his position with flying colors, supporting Reesh's insistence that Ernie could not have been manipulating the disturbances. But how to reconcile the incidents independent witnesses, relatives, reporters, neighbors, the housing authority, and paranormal investigators had concluded and had been genuinely unexplained. With the fact the boy threw those measuring tapes in front of their eyes, one question, Ernie insisted he did not throw the tapes at his grandmother. Then came a shocker. The polygraph showed Ernie was entirely honest when he denied throwing the tapes. Either Ernie, whom they just had tested in a below-average range, had outwitted the polygraph and a catter of Duke University faculty or something bigger, stranger, was going on. Duke's Dr. Ben Feather, meanwhile, hypnotized Ernie and confirmed that Ernie possessed no knowledge of throwing the measuring tapes. Feather concluded that Ernie threw the tapes in a state of disassociation, which the team believed might relate to the unexplained cerebral spikes shown in the EEG. Building on this story of disassociation, what surprised Roll was that Ernie seemed to be unconscious both during the moments of the documented genuine events and the instance with the tape measures. During his interviews with the boy, Feather was able to unearth more of the boy's past, giving insight into his psyche and possibly forces of energy around him. When asked about his father, the young boy appeared to show disdain and described a cruel man who beat him and his mother, which oftentimes landed the elder Ernest in jail. According to these accounts, two years of constant fighting had contributed to his mother killing his father. In Feather's observations, Ernie did not appear to show any sort of emotion toward his father's death, except relief that his father had not been the one to kill his mother. In another interview, Ernie admitted admiration and fondness for his father. The team examining Ernie came to the conclusion that the poltergeist experiences were connected to a family turmoil, as well as psychological distress and trauma. In light of the tests indicating disassociation, these forces invading Ernie's broken family could now have turned into something even more dangerous and chilling, taking control of Ernie himself to carry on disturbances. Unseen forces controlling objects around him appeared to involve, evolve into unseen forces controlling him. The one-way mirror in the room where Ernie had been at that pivotal moment presented another intriguing element. Supernaturalists believe that mirrors reflecting mirrors, an effect sometimes created in carnival funhouses, could open paranormal pathways. For centuries, experts of the paranormal have advised covering mirrors while sleeping. It was a nightmare scenario for the specialists and family members alike. Ernie could be slipping away from them. Back in Newark earlier that year, Charles Reich had suggested that Ernie might learn to harness and control the psychokinetic forces that seemed to surround him. Now as the case at Duke came to a head, a pivotal moment had arrived for the experts to either help or discard Ernie. In the case of the Herman family, the Long Island Polter case, Polter case, Poltergeist case, Poltergeist. E Polter case, even the police had become involved alongside Roll's team in trying to understand and overcome the mysterious occurrences. When, with the Hermans reportedly finding peace once the forces were banished, paving a way to what became quite literally a Hollywood ending when their journey was immortalized in Poltergeist, giving hope to Ernie was the fact that Roll had actually moved into family homes experiencing poltergeist and even ended up becoming a de facto foster father to a young woman who was kicked out by her family after a poltergeist. But those other cases seem to be divided from Ernie's biracial and socioeconomic fault lines. 
Not only did the police refuse to help Mabel and Ernie, they turned them away. In the Herman case, the investigators could take their time in a single-family home, both to thoroughly observe the family and help but put the poltergeist behind them. But in Newark, a continuation of disturbances would mean certain eviction from Mabel with a threat to sink into poverty. Ernie indicated to the team that, at Duke that he would really like to live with his grandmother, and if only those objects would stop flying through the air, he would be able to return to her. As the moment of truth came forward, the end of the family's stay in Durham, the team could have braced for a possible extended battle grappling with unexplained forces on one side and with bureaucratic officials on the other to keep Ernie's family together and finally give them hope for the future. To finally turn Ernie's home into a home he could count on. Instead, they crushed those hopes with a far blunter recommendation to solve the psychological and paranormal crisis. Ernie and Mabel should be separated for good. With the frenzy around the Project Poltergeist quieting down, reporters and professors began to leave Ernie and his family alone. After a stint in a foster home and a farm for foster children, Ernie's Aunt Ruth and Uncle William took him back to their Bellevue, I'm sorry, Belleville home. Not Bellevue, Jesus Christ, <laughs> psychiatric <laughs> hospital. <laughs> Belleville. While similar incidences of glasses and items flying and breaking occurred in Belleville, Far away from the limelight, they proved less violent than in Newark. In October of 1965, Anne, whose escape from prison had been short-lived, was paroled after serving eight years in the Clinton Reformatory for women. Shortly after she was released, Anne was murdered by a pair of alleged mobsters seeking vengeance for the murder of their prized boxer, her husband, just a few years before. Unrest in Newark's public housing with its drastic inequities and institutionalized racism as well as police treatment of minority citizens contributed to a major riot in 1967. A National Guard tank was driven into the courtyard of the Felix Fold Housing Project and the buildings where Ernie had spent so much time echoed with gunfire. I think just the energy of the area and everything that was going on on top of all of Ernie's trauma just contributed to how heavy oh, I have the energy no was in this area and just made it even worse. The overextended William and Ruth considered sending their orphan nephew back to a group home, but they ultimately embraced stability for Ernie. William promised Ernie that whatever was going on with him or following him around, they would face it without the help of psychologists and parapsychologists. The incidences gradually stopped by the time Ernie turned 18 and joined the Marine Corps. For years after parting ways with Ernie, Roll continued to speak about the Newark events at parapsychological conventions and write about it in technical journals. The 1962 Parapsycho Parapsychological Association Convention, the first to take place after Ernie's experiences, was hosted at the Jack Tar Hotel, the same one that Ernie and Mabel had stayed and featured talks on what had happened in the Newark housing project. The case contributed to Roll's rising stock in the paranormal community. Ernie remained in New Jersey through his adulthood. He married and had children of his own and the violent incidences receding into family lore. But later, Ernie's wife claimed to experience some unusual phenomenon in their house. An occasional glass would drop in the kitchen from time to time. There was one moment in particular that she would never forget. She woke up in the middle of the night to the glimpse of what she believed to be a man sitting on their windowsill. Startled, she jostled Ernie to let him know what had happened. Ernie responded as though he knew just what it was she had seen. Just go back to sleep, he said. Don't worry about it. 
Yeah. So Alrighty that's then. Got. Um, so there are no pictures of Ernie um, available. There's, if Ernie were still alive, um, he turned 13 in 1961. That was 60 years ago. He would be 73. So, um, you know, there is a chance that he's still alive and that, you know, his kids are still around. But to be quite honest with you, with everything that he went through in his childhood, I would not want anybody to know where I am. I wouldn't want any pictures of me out there. I wouldn't want... Especially with this movie coming out? Mm -mm. I mean, I... Now, there was something mentioned on the Scared to Death podcast that I did agree with. Um, you know, it would be really nice if well, they were... Be nice. I know, right? Um, if the movie were made and that there was some kind of compensation given to the family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I feel like that would be the least that they could give to Ernie and his family. Um, but I could tell, I completely, if they did that though, they need to keep it, they need to keep it private. Right. But I complete like, just, just have a little, you know, money fund set aside, give that to them. Nobody needs to know about it, but just make sure that something is given to them. Because ultimately, this is his story. Yep. And it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for all the trauma and the pain that he had to go through. I mean, it's just... Trauma on top of trauma. God, on top of everything. I mean, and you think about it like... Not only going through all of this, but going through all of it and being a black person. On I mean, top you know, of all of that. And what really fascinated me about this story, especially when we got to the part about how so few police and investigators helped them... That seems so different when you look at stories like The Conjuring or mm -hmm. The Enfield Poltergeist or all these other stories where police were there and investigators were so involved. But the one thing that all of those have in common is those families were white. And how drastically different it was for Mabel and Ernie because they were black in an area of the country that was... I mean, just about everywhere in the country in the 60s was experiencing racism, but in Newark, New Jersey, oh my God. It was just, and, and it's been talked about for years, even, you know, just there, there were, there's so, it's a city that is, you know, in proximity to New York and proximity to all these rich areas that it just sort of seems like everybody forgot. And it's just filled with these housing projects and it's for really poor people and from the start of them they were just notoriously racist and would take advantage of these tenants because they felt like they had to they were owned by white people they were leased to black people and they just felt like they had the right to take advantage as much as they could so it was well, just so much i was attacked by some idiot in the projects he's climbing in your windows he's snatching your people up <laughs> Trying Tell to me what was your era of you had your kids, had your wives, and had your husbands because they raped everybody out here. Antoine Dotson. I love it. He made so much money from that. Good on good. him. Good on him. I'm glad. There's been an update recently. He's still doing good. He got Oh, the is he? He got the COVID. Oh, shit. But he bounced back. Okay. But he's doing all right. Okay. He's out there. That's hilarious. I love it. I just love that he's still out there and that people still know who he is and he's still making oh, of course. money from just him. Just like, like everyone good. knows who the... I went downstairs to get me a cold pop. And you know what they said, too? That she really bounced back, too. Did she? she? had, like, 
she was able to like turn a lot of that into merchandise and like go back and yeah because she was on she got clean like the stories behind a lot of these are always so great i mean if they if they can be success stories like you about to lose your job oh man that woman's story is incredible and i Love follow that her story. on social media and it makes me so happy she has custody, you of, her, she has custody of her son she just had another baby she's got a little girl I'm happy for um, her. Yeah, I'm really, really happy. And she's really on a road to staying healthy. So it's really good when experiences like that can work out well. Yes. But um, so uh, real quick, I'm just going to read this article from The Hollywood Reporter that was written back in October of 2020. So it's in regards to the uh, movie that's supposed to be made um, about the Project Poltergeist. It says that Oscar-winning filmmaker John Ridley is set to write and direct a new Blumhouse horror project based on the first purported haunting to be experienced in a public housing project based on the recently published article that we just read um the adaptation will focus on the true events surrounding unexplained events that terrified a young boy in new jersey in the 1960s blumhouse recently acquired the rights to the article jason blum will produce and truly adventurous's matthew pearl and greg nicholas are executive producers the film will be produced by blumhouse in association with truly adventurous this is an incredible true life narrative a young man dealing with horrors both paranormal and racially systemic in a community that is scarred by hate yet ultimately brought together by hope i really appreciate blumhouse's commitment to telling stories that seek to entertain audiences even as it challenges them said ridley Added Blum, the best scary movies are always based on a real event, and we were very compelled by the material that this story is based on. I also know that John Ridley is good as is as good as you can get as a dramatic storyteller, so we're confident that infusing this story with John's brand of drama is a great bet. Um, yeah, so I am super excited about this. Um, again, I haven't found any more information out of anything from October of 2020 in regards to this being adapted into a movie. So hopefully right now they're just kind of, um, you know, working on a script and getting all that finalized. You know, obviously we still, you know, at that time when they acquired the rights, covid was still going on so hopefully with things being cleared and getting back to normal somewhat normal um as far as the movie industry goes because you know we are starting to see things pick up as far as uh <laughs> what was it the other day someone was like it was you because you were talking about the conjuring and i was like at first when you said that i was like it hasn't come out until next month and i'm like it's june oh i know <laughs> i was like wait people have been like posting everywhere about it. i'm like what the fuck i'm like oh right i was like oh it's yeah like, i have to care about when movies are coming out again. here i know right? <laughs> so yeah i am super excited about this i hope you guys enjoyed it um and I'm like, i i want this to be made into a movie so i just bad. really hope it's a hit yeah because we both know blumhouse i love you honest to god you guys have come out with some some fucking solid ass gems oh we talked about this at length but when then, they nail it they nail it and when they don't they don't. <laughs> fantasy island was fucking awful so i don't know what i don't know what that was but, but anyway but um, like I said, yeah when they got it they got it when they don't they don't so let's just hope i mean i have did both house make ouija i don't know that was uh uh 
I'm so sorry. Oh, I'll have to look it up now because I'm going to drink The <laughs> Haunting of Hill House and what <coughs> is his name? <coughs> oh my God, excuse me. No, that's Ouija Orvin, Origin of Evil. I'm talking about Ouija. He did. Because Mike do... Flanagan didn't do oh, okay, Origin never of mind. Evil. Never mind. No, he did. He did he Origin did of Evil, of them? but he didn't do the first one. Oh, okay. He just did Origin of Evil. I thought he did both of them. That's why Origin of Evil is good and the other one isn't. <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, right. um, yeah, actually, Blumhouse, yeah, Blumhouse Productions did do the original Ouija. Um, now you got me wanting to, like, wait, did they do, did they do Origin of Evil? Because I know Mike Flanagan did that. I need the Wikipedia for this now. <laughs> for some reason, when you said Mike Flanagan, I wasn't thinking Ouija, I was... The fucking mirror. Oculus? Yes. <laughs> Both of them start with an O. I was about to be like, Ouija does not start with... <sighs> the Luigi board? The Luigi board? The quiche board. Borg? Borg. Wah-weg board. Nailed it. <laughs> you were like, Ouija doesn't start with an O. I'm like, Christian. yes, it does. Don't, <laughs> don't make me feel. Me over any... here spelling the word out, Ouija. Ouija doesn't start with I'm an like, O. Literally, don't make me feel any more crazy than I already feel when you were saying Ouija the whole time, and my brain went Mike Flanagan, Oculus. But you're, you're not wrong because Mike Flanagan did Ouija. But I'm thinking <laughs> Oculus, and for some reason, you're going he didn't direct Ouija, and I'm hearing you say he didn't direct Oculus. <laughs> And I'm like, yes, he fucking did. <laughs> but what's really funny is that he did direct Ouija, Origin of Evil, he but he didn't direct Ouija, but they're both Blumhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh my God, my brain. <laughs> da, 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 da. <sighs> both of her fucking brain. I'm telling you, this sleep deprived oh, shit. Oh no. That dog better let me sleep tonight. I can't. Oh my god. Jesus. I'm fucking dying death. <laughs> dying death. <sighs> um, is that everything? I think we got it. Okay. I think we got it. <coughs> don't die. I'm fine. Please don't die. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed that though, seriously. Um, that's that's such an interesting story, and it's gonna be really cool. Incredible, and I loved it, and it was so interesting to talk about, but I'm sure you guys agree that it's a it's sad. Yeah. It, it's it's kind of a rough one. He has been through so much. And then you just take the racial component into it as well. It's just even worse. And I totally understand why he's not in the public eye. And nobody knows where he is. And nobody knows where his family is. Because I think they should keep it that way. Leave him alone. Just leave him alone. Um, he's been through enough. But yeah, if you guys would like to listen to the... Um, just because it's a little more... It's a little more cinematic. Um, Scared to Death does, they have audio and video. Their video is on YouTube. And uh, Dan telling the story is kind of cool because they add in like, you know, sound effects. So like as he's talking about glass breaking, like you'll hear glass breaking. So it's kind of, it's kind of neat, his take on the story. Um, but yeah, he pretty much went over everything that we went over. It's just uh, sort of interesting, his take on it, in case you wanted to um, listen to Scared to Death's episode. But um, 
otherwise we hope you guys like that if you guys if you guys have ever heard of this story past this article that came out, please let us know. Um, I had never heard of this story before. And again, this was something that um, when Scared to Death had done the research, they had never heard of this story before. I don't think this is really a story that's commonly known unless you uh, lived and grew up in that area. Um or just decided to do what this writer did, Celia, and and pour over archival footage and bring this story to light 60 years later and let everybody know about it. And, um, you know, bravo to Blumhouse for buying the rights to it. And hopefully do it right, guys. A, a good content. Well, not also for out of respect for Ernie's family. Because I feel like a lot of these movies that are attached to real life stories, you have to remember that there are real life people behind all of this. And I feel like if you don't do it right, it is such a disrespect to the families. I also already commend you for getting a black act or a black director. That already is yeah, like setting it in good and, motion. Yeah. Yeah. You're already, so, you're already going about it the right way because right. Yeah. I would not have been happy if I found out nope. that it was a white director or a white run. I'm like, no, no. those you're never going to be able to translate. Um, how a black person feels especially like again just the scope of this story mm -hmm. you have to have right people black people writing it from yes. a black perspective otherwise it's just we know okay black folks know we know when shows and movies with black people have been written by whites we know we also know. Trust me, we know. We can tell by the dialogue because we're like, we don't motherfucking talk like that. We don't sound like that. We don't look like that. Like, no. I say we like I'm black. No. I meant to say we in the LGBTQ community. We Same also thing. know. Same thing. When someone who directs a film, writes a film, or plays a character just like black people, we know when it's a white person who is obviously a white person, but that's not what I meant. Like somebody who's straight or... Um, you know, not, not saying anything against straight people. I'm not saying anything against straight people. I'm just saying we know. We can tell. Because most of the time, especially if it's a lesbian movie directed by a man, <laughs> the whole movie is sex. The entire fucking film. These, these. The entire. Have you seen movie. Below Her Mouth? Is it called Below Her Mouth? I don't know. It's a movie that literally has a plot where this girl, this is the plot. Are you ready? This girl's living ready. with this guy in an apartment. He goes on vacation. Girl falls in love with her. Is the the woman who who is doing something for their roof. They fuck all the time. He comes back, finds them cheating. That is almost a two hour long film. And that is the plot. I told you the plot in 10 seconds. Almost that entire movie is sex. And I'm not sitting here saying I don't appreciate it. But sometimes I really don't appreciate you it. You always know that a man is involved because it's like, it's always, it's always this, you know, straight white couple. And then all of a sudden this, this evil lesbian <laughs> homewrecker steps in. And all of a sudden the wife discovers, ooh, maybe I'm not straight. And the whole entire movie is sex. And then the guy finds out and he's like, huh, and he's all heartbroken. And it's like, 
this is not real life. This is not how this works. This is this is obviously some sort of weird straight man's fantasy. This is exact. This is exactly what a straight man w- w- wants this to play out. How many movies? And all it's doing is continuing to demonize the LGBTQ community. Yes. It's just it's just more how and many, more and more demonization. How many movies with gay men? Is there sex like that? Please tell me. Oh, and it's never, oh, it's never shown. And it's always, it's always, again, if it's written by straights, the man is closeted. He's always closeted. Always closeted. And it's always some really overly dramatic, you know, it's never a happy tale of him coming out. Lesbians him, too. But it's never happy. There's never a happy. Someone ending. dies. It's yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Someone always dies. Or they go back to their straight. Relationship. Or they get AIDS. Somebody gets AIDS. I love that. I love how they they throw the AIDS panic in there again after all these fucking years. Like, can we please stop that? Like, can gays just get a happy ending for Christ's sake in a fucking movie? Can gays write the gay movie? Hey, Orphan Black. So we can get a fucking. Oh my god. Thank you for letting Cosima and Delphine get married. Thank you for that. They got it right. Oh my Lanta. They got it right. Actually, Orange is the New Black didn't do too bad with it either because even though Laura, that's her real name, what the fuck? (laughs) Even though Alex and Piper didn't end up together, they were very cordial and they remained friends. So, and then you have kissing Jessica Stein. Even though they didn't end up together, they still remained really good friends. Well, and what I loved about that, too, is that one took the awkwardness of all of it and where it's always the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And they just were like, okay, we're just going to let it all out because we know this awkwardness is real. This is mm-hmm. always real. This is always something that happens. So we're not going to act like it doesn't happen. I feel like that movie was the realist. That was Kissing a, Jessica that was a, Stein is one of the OG, like the, I stand that movie. I yeah, there was a lot movie. in that movie that was very real and true to life. Sexy, so, ugly. Yeah, it's a real thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, so yeah, yeah, that's, um. we'll probably get on a lot of gay rants because, you know, Pride Month. It's gay month. Um, and it's my birthday month. It is. And it's gay month. So I'm like ultra gay this month. You are the epitome <laughs> or just. Of- However I'm feeling for the day, I don't know. I just found out that was a new word, too. I don't even know what, I forgot what it was. But apparently there's a new word now that it's just whatever you feel for that day. Like, today I'm feeling gay. And then another day I might be feeling more bi. And then another day I might be feeling more queer. And another oh, yeah. day I might be feeling more, I just, I have those days all the time. <laughs> like, no, just every day. Gay, gay, every gay, day, gay, please gay, put gay, a gay, vagina gay, in my gay, face. Gay, gay, gay. I never have straight days though. Let's Actually, get that though, fucking... when Tom Hiddleston. See, then every once in a while. See, but, but they're Tom Hiddleston days. <laughs> Those are going to be a lot more prevalent here they're in the not next really, few days. Not you really know, when like, life comes out. They're not really like bi days. You just have you have Tom Hiddleston days. <laughs> An occasional Hiddleston. Cody Fern. But I never, occasional. I never have straight days. Let's just get that fucking clear right now. I, I never have see... a day where I'm like, I feel straight. I will take you to the emergency room. 
Immediately. Ma'am, what are your symptoms? I woke up and I felt straight. I wanted a penis and I'm <laughs> I'm scared. Oh, my God. oh fuck. <laughs> um it would literally be a nightmare. I was gonna say something to that and my wake brain up straight like ah what happened? <laughs> fuck me, I'm straight. No, don't fuck me, I don't mean that. <laughs> like, oh it's all a nightmare. Thank God. Have you seen that TikTok? Excuse me, miss. I would like you to ride my face. Yes. Grind yes. all day. <laughs> Bravo. Seriously, though, what was I going to say? Fuck. Oh, so if you put, like, this is how I know I'm very gay because I'm like, if you put Jennifer Lawrence and Tom Hiddleston in a room together, actually, I should not say her because she's always going to be number one, but. Him and any of my top ladies, I'm always going to choose the woman. Typically, and this is how I know I shift more towards, what is it, like more gay. Because I could say the same thing, nine times out of ten, it's always going to be the woman. Nine times out of ten, it's always going to be the woman. No matter how hot I think the guy is and they mm -hmm. have a thing for him, it's always... I'm typically going to want to hang out with the guy. Yeah. I would love to have sex with, him. with the woman. Yeah. Right. It'd be like. Because even if I am sexually attracted to the guy, I'm like, there's like, there's just going to be this weird intimidation factor where I'm just like, I can't. Especially Tom Hiddleston because can't. have you seen? Look, him <laughs> and Jason Momoa are two of these where I just look at them and I just go, No. <laughs> No. They had to create a flap for Logan's no! outfit because his penis was too big. No. And then I have, what's his name? The one that I get angry because he's so hot. And you talking about the gay guy? Yeah. The one from Girl Luke, on the Train? Uh, yeah. And I'm, I get, I'm, I'm no. angry. Is it Luke Wilson? No. Okay. It's Luke something. But I get angry with him. I love how that's a thing where you think someone's so hot that you're mad at them. Oh, I, I, that happens. I love how that's a thing where you just look at them and you go, Fuck you. Me with like, me with Blake Lively in suits. <laughs> Literally. Her and Ryan Reynolds both, I have such a love. I look at them and go, fuck. I would. <laughs> and both, both of, of you. <laughs> fuck. Angry. By panic. And horny. And angry. You're Horn angry. Anghorn. You know, how many bi's and queers are out there with Ryan? I'm telling you, we're going to get people they're going to be like, I'm, I'm not the only one with Ryan Reynolds and Blake Clyde. I'm telling you, they're that fucking couple where you're just like, really? Really? I really? Mean, no offense really? to Ryan Reynolds. I just really? fucked his wife. But I'd be like, I've been wanting to fuck your wife since Serena. Sir? Wait, was that her name? Yeah, Serena Vanderhoosen. Who's Woodson? <laughs> you are doing way better than me. <laughs> Serena All Vanderhoosen. I fucking know is XOXO. <laughs> Actually, no. Let's take it back even farther. Bridget from Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Oh, wow. You're really taking it. Let's take it I back. I actually did see that. Let's take it back. I didn't watch. <laughs> I definitely was not a look. Actually, to be honest I was with you, I age... wanted to fuck Amber Tamblin in that movie, to be honest with you. Still I want wanted to fuck, to fuck Tamblin, America but... Ferreira. <laughs> I was all about I Amber Tamblin, and then I turned into I Amber Tamblin. this weird thing where I thought she was super hot for, like, the longest time, and I'm like, America Ferreira? Mm. I used to get mad. I love Ugly Betty, because oh I was like, God, she's not so even funny. ugly. 
No, she wasn't. At Isn't. all. She's so pretty. She is. She's very pretty. I don't know how we got on this. <laughs> and then me being mad at Amber Tamblin's character for fucking a guy and having a pregnancy scare. I would, I would get mad about that because I wanted her to be gay. I don't, right. I'm like... When I was I like younger, secretly, I was like, I like secretly still want Amber Tamblin to be gay. I think she might be a little on the spectrum. Um, oh yeah. I mean, she's married to a man and they're happy, but I'm like, Jennifer Lawrence is married to a man and is happy, and I'm still like, you're you're something. I don't know what you are. I'm married but... to a man and I'm happy, but I am definitely not straight. <laughs> I love having a bisexual girlfriend though because it's I can get so excited with her about the men. And the women, but it's funny because I'm like, all the men are yours. <laughs> like, oh, my husband is still like. But we do we, we do share Tom Hiddleston. The same and I'm like women are hot, and I'm just like, eh. he's just like damn. I'm just like damn. <laughs> I'm just like damn. He's just like yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you gonna do? <laughs> women. Anyway, um. Right. So next week we are going to be t- finally finally we have, we have put this off. And we have put this off and put this off, but we, we are finally with going an extra Wednesday in June. This is an appropriate time to just go ahead and get this series out of the fucking way. Hey, some it's of them are bad. really good. Some of them. One through three. I just still haven't watched six yet again for the second time, which will be tomorrow. And fuck me. Anyway, paranormal activity. We will be talking about next week. All of the them. whole series. All six. Y'all. All six. I had someone have the audacity to tell me that they loved Six the other day. And I'm like, excuse me. It has been, so I will be watching Six tomorrow. And it feels like it has been 80,000 years since I've seen Six. Like, I I read a quick synopsis and I was like, that's what Six was about? (laughs) I was like, did I watch this fucking movie? I watched it in the theater. I watched it in theater in 3D. Because I was trying to figure out where does this random family come from and what the, what? Did I, what? I was just mad Katie wasn't in it. Also, watching 4 again today. I'm so sorry. Every time I watch 4, hubby gets home and I go, I'm still wanting somebody to explain to me that how does this bitch go from being such an all-powerful demon killing everybody and she loses the fucking kid for five years. How in the God, how did she lose the kid for five years? Also, where the fuck did Robbie come from? And Robbie, sir, why are you dressing like a middle-aged man? The sandals and the socks, sir. The sandals and the socks, Careful, that's sir. actually a hundred years old. <laughs> Remember when he said to Ben, you're going to find out. Ben was like, the fuck is the camera... <laughs> Listen, four was a comedy. Four was a comedy because I'm cracking the fuck up. Katie's just literally the entire movie. Katie's just walking around. I laugh. And fucking tell me why at the end, too, when the van drive, I was like, this is in fucking, y'all are in one of the richest neighbor. These fucking white whore. Middle of the night, people yelling in the middle of the goddamn road and nothing. Nobody calls the cops. Nobody yells out the window. Hey, you need some help? Nobody. Literally nothing. I am sick and fucking tired of that in these goddamn movies. She goes out in the middle of the fucking street and nobody hears all that commotion. Fucking Nobody hears nothing. That was funny. You're right, though. Four 
was that weird like break in tension because it was so fucking funny. There were parts in four. I just, I was ripping on Robbie's outfit. Ben had me laughing. First of all, can we just say Ben deserved better? Because all that boy wanted to get was a nut off to this little white girl. And he didn't get his nut off. And Katie broke his fucking neck. And spoiler alert if you ain't... But I mean, like, Ben... Personally... Poor ben personally, deser Ben was funny as fuck, and Ben deserved better. Personally, ben I wanted Katie to get my nut off for the Spiral Activity right? 1. But, you ben, know... Ben deserved better, y'all. That's all I'm gonna say about Katie could have at least fucked him before she killed him. She could have at least done, you know... Anything. Something. Anything. Just when he looked at him, <laughs> you're gonna find out. He's like, the fuck? <laughs> Robbie! Let me tell you right now. If I ever wanted to punch a little white boy in the face, Robbie had me wanting to beat his ass that whole goddamn movie. I was also screaming. great casting on who you screaming. picked to play Hunter. He looks like, um, I can't think of her name. But like when Katie says he looks just like, like his mom, mom I'm like he does Christy. actually look just like Sir, whatever her name is, Christy. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about it next really week. We're gonna to get sorry. into this. We're like, yeah, we gotta end this. I'm rip sorry. That fourth one. We'll get into it. We'll, we will rip into four. We will. We're gonna rip, get into all we of them. Rip. We're gonna rip four in half. One week. is gonna be like all king and nothing bad about that one and then we're just gonna rip the rest of them to shreds except for two and three because those were gonna. Anyway. Alright guys, well you know our socials. We have Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter all at DFWTO Podcast. The handles are still DFWTO8893 that is incorrect. They are 8811. <laughs> that is the email. <laughs> Too many fucking numbers. Da -da 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 it's getting too late for all these fucking numbers. Um, so DFWTO8811 is the Facebook and the Twitter handle. Um, like I said, um, Instagram is DFWTO Podcast. They are officially all changed. We're still going to change them on the actual uh, podcast sites, which would we're on Podbean, um, Spotify, I almost said Instagram, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. For right now, Pretty there's much everywhere you still don't fuck with the original. <clears throat> Excuse me. And of course, you know. That, is that it? Is that all of the is that all of them? Oh, oh yeah. Leave was... leave a review and uh, give us a follow because of Please course you do. will know whenever we put out new episodes. You guys have a fantastic week. And remember, don't, don't fuck, fuck with, with the, the original. original. We love you. Bye. Stop. Bye.